Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. Every once in a while on the program, we do something completely different, and that's what we're doing today. My guest is Svetlana Slapshot. She lives in Slovenia and is a specialist in Balkan studies and a historian and a writer. In 1993, she won the American Pen Freedom of Expression Award, and in 2005, she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She's here with me today to discuss a new book that she co-authored with Noah Charney titled The Slavic Myths. Charney was a previous guest on the program discussing his book on women in art. But today, it's The Slavic Myths and Ms. Slavchuk. Ms. Slavchuk, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to have you. Well, let me just start with a real basic question for our listeners. Who are the Slavs? What, how would you define the Slavic people? Very shortly, I would define Slavs as a huge, very mixed ethnic group, uh, the biggest group in whole Europe and in a part of Asia, and at the same time defined by one uh, uh, family of languages, which is Slavic languages, and that would be the shortest definition. Okay. And some, just to, maybe this is obvious to you, but just so we have a handle on Slavic languages, give us some examples of those languages. What, what well, are we Russia- talking about? Russian, Polish, Czech, Slovak, uh, um, Serbian, Croatian, uh, Montenegrin, recently Macedonian, and so on and so on. So there are many, of course, Baltic groups and Mediterranean groups and Balkan groups and so on and so on. It's a very complicated linguistic image, but it's uh, uh, extremely differentiated and very uh, extremely funny to learn about. <laughs> okay. Well, that gives us a much better idea. Thanks. So. So you've written this book about the myths that are part of the tradition of, of, of these peoples. Um, why are their myths important for us to know beyond simply being stories that are passed down over the generations? And that's important too, but is there a, is there a larger importance of these myths, do you think? Oh, definitely it is. Uh, basically the Slavic epic tradition and the tradition of narratives in in the Slavic countries uh, was connected to ancient uh, techne of uh, telling stories in in Homer and Hesiod and some others. And in fact, it's in the Balkans where uh, the technique of this epic telling the story was uh, analyzed and in a way discovered. And it was done by two Americans, Milton Perry and Albert Lord. So we have the notion of singer of tales, a person who has a treasury of motives and stories, already made stories in his head, and he can produce basically a story on any topic you give him, uh, uh, extempore, immediately. So that's one of the importance of the Slavic epic uh, and oral tradition, basically. And the other thing is that, the, let's say, the Slavic uh, myths, uh, some of them are overbearing the, the the rest, and this is Russian myths, of course, but the minor Slavic uh, traditions and uh, narratives and epic traditions are also important. And Balkans in among these is especially important because it links the Mediterranean myths, the ancient myths, and, and also the myths of Central Europe and the Nordic myths. And to be different from both of them, it's completely chaotic without real structure and without real hierarchy. And that's what it makes it so interesting. Ah, okay. So, um, well, you may have just given me a hint of the answer to this next question and what you just said, but if we think of the Slavic myths, and I'll, I'll ask you to talk about some of the specific ones in a little bit, but right now, if we think about these Slavic myths as, an, as a whole group, 
are there any general characteristics of these myths? Are there any sort of ways that they are? You said they're chaotic, but are they structured in any way? Is there a certain type of moral or story they all point to? Oh, definitely they do. They also made the transition between the ancient myths of Europe and the Christianity. And in some ways, they this translation or transition, if you want, is so interesting that it really gives new narratives and new meanings to some aspects of Christianity in Europe. Interesting. And so do they have do these myths, do they have any social or political purposes or messages that you could identify? They were built on that in the 19th century by intellectuals of all Slavic countries. So let's say um, when you start with Slavic myths, you know that they are lie, gross lie, ah. <laughs> made by my intellectuals to promote their own nation. But when you clear up a bit, uh, a lot of dust and a lot of state, uh, let's say, um, um, marmalade, <laughs> they were uh, dipped in. You find, in fact, many social uh, nuances, uh, many ideas about uh, slavery, about uh, injustice, about uh, justice winning at the end, and so on and so on. They're deeply social, most of the, these myths. But of course, this, this state, if you want crust, had to be broken, had to be deconstructed to see what is beneath. Hmm. And what about uh, any kind of spiritual uh, messages that they, you, you mentioned these connect sort of older stories of Christianity and maybe some of the, I heard Nordic in here as well. So there, you know, are there, are there any sort of spiritual messages that the, that the Slavic myths are about? Oh, definitely. They, uh, they went through Christianity, but they didn't accept the whole. And if we want to see the spiritual line that really unites uh, Slavic mythology, it's shamanism. It's the practices of uh, metempsychosis of living through the lives of other creatures, not only humans, but also animals. So that's a spiritual line that goes even today, that is recognizable in some rituals even today. Okay, and when you said one of the uh, uh, social or political messages, you mentioned justice winning out in the end. And I, you know, I happen to be reading uh, a second book in addition to yours mm -hmm. about, um, uh, Poland right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm just struck by the tragedies over the centuries that that country and those people have been through. I mean, the one that I was obviously most familiar with was uh, World War II and then the aftermath of World War II with the Soviet domination. But my Lord, it it just goes back and back and back. And I I, I, I guess my question is, Justice winning out in the end, I think that's going to be a hard sell for some of the people in this area of the world, given all of the tragedy that they have lived through over the centuries. Tell me a little bit more about that. Definitely. Um, there is something that uh, um, links, if you want, the notion of ancient tragedy <laughs> and the Slavic myths, and the, in fact, the whole spiritual tradition, and that is that the only genre that we certainly know is transferred from antiquity and never stopped. There, there's no Caesar, it's always there. Caesar, it's always there. That's a women's lament over dead. From ancient Greece till today in the Balkans and in Greece, it's the same thing. So when you think about this, 
then you realize, yes, there's a tragedy in history of all these peoples. And when you think about Poland, well, that's a very special case because understanding Poland will make you understand the war between Russia and Ukraine today. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm getting some insight into that. Yeah. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Svetlana Slopchuk. She's the author of The Slavic Myths. Okay, so what are some of the myths, specific myths, that our listeners are going to be most likely to be familiar with? If they were opening your book, they'd say, oh, okay, I, I know this story. What are some of the big ones there? Well, the big ones are certainly um, vampire and uh, werewolf. Uh, in America, the shortened version, version of vampire gave vamp, which all Americans know, at least from film history. And uh, it's something that really passed immediately into the popular literature in the West. And the American Bram Stoker make it, made it so, so known, so glorious in uh, the whole world. You find it in comics, you find it in video games, everywhere there's a vampire. There's somewhere there's a vampire. There are series of film about vampires. And of course, it's an interesting phenomenon with werewolf because they exchange their roles and their names also because of the taboo of the name. They are too powerful. And they're both <clears throat> related to one of the, the oldest and the, mo the strongest Balkan myths, uh, which is the myth of wolf. And wolf might be, might be in some occasions also the, the primary deity of the Balkans. So it's an interesting phenomenon, which, uh, well, he vampire changes color too. In the Balkans, he's red when they bury him up. And in the West, he's white. <laughs> he sucked all the blood. Is white. So it's an interesting phenomenon which we follow in popular culture, also with some serious, serious poetry. So that's a person that they would recognize immediately. And you say that the wolf then a primary deity the, for, for the origin of some of these myths. I'd like to yeah. hear a little bit more about that. As a, as a deity, what is the wolf embodying? Is it about, is it about love? Is it about uh, justice, uh, uh, vengeance? What, what, what are the things that the wolf does, does. as does as a deity? <laughs> well, in my view, uh, he's taken because of uh, the extreme uh, extreme structure of the wolf society. That's the, the thing that really impressed people. The wolf society is a complicated one with hierarchies, with relations, interrelations, and so on and so on. So that impressed people, but also his strength, his power. And being dangerous, he is revered because he might be good also. He is uh, also a symbol of wisdom, practical wisdom. So he like he is something close to the Greek metis, the practical intelligence, the Odysseus way of thinking, finding tricks uh, to, to get out of trouble and so on and so on. So Wolf is extremely multilateral creature and also he is a symbol of masculinity but a well-arranged masculinity, which belongs to a certain society, which behaves according to the rules and so on. Interesting, interesting. So those are some of the two big ones people are gonna obviously be aware of, werewolves and, and vampires. What are some of the myths that would be unknown or less known to our listeners that you think are especially interesting that really? Well, there's my favorite, who is totally unknown, and that's the Saint Friday, if I translate her name. She's uh, Saint Paraskevi in, in 
Greek because she's uh, uh, the day before Sabbath, the day of preparation. So that's this saint. But also her her earlier roots uh, go directly to Demeter, <laughs> Greek uh, goddess, and also to Aphrodite. So she's a wise woman who protects women, basically women in 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 uh, activities like uh, cleaning, weaving, uh, finding med medical plants and so medicinal plants and so on and so on. And she uh, tra was translated from the uh, pagan myths to the Christian myths, and she functions in a very specific way in the Christian world in the Balkans. She is the saint who sits right next to Saint Elias, who is also elected as a leading saint of the Olympic space of Christian saints in the Balkans. So she's extremely powerful, and she, exactly like Demeter, has a daughter. The father is not known and is not important at all, but the daughter is. So the stories about daughter and in, in Balkan and uh, tradition, uh, her uh, daughter is called Sandy. Hmm. So it's Friday and Sunday, and between them is uh, Saturday, which is the day of dead. <laughs> so you, you see the whole link, which comes from very early times, goes through Christianity and comes back into the new world as a kind of pagan belief. And she is one of the saints that you will meet in churches in the Balkans, in Greece, in Bosnia, in Serbia, everywhere, uh, Macedonia, everywhere. She has a special altar and a special uh, duties around women. She heals women, but not only that. For instance, there's one rule that might be remembered and useful, and that is if you um, wash your husband's shirt on Thursday evening, he will be sick on Fridays. So <laughs> <laughs> she's she's protecting women uh, from aggressive, from male violence also, uh, she's extremely important. So when you see the the walls covered with votive uh, votive uh, gifts to to Petka, uh, as as she's named in in Slavic uh, Balkan languages, you will be surprised. And also Roma and Muslim women uh, protect uh, are protect uh, have uh, Saint Petka as protectress. So there's one creature that we didn't know about, and it is impo extremely important. You know, those connections are just fascinating. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Balkan Studies Specialist Svetlana Slopshok about her new book, The Slavic Myths. Ms. Slopshok was also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. Well, tell me how you went about collecting and selecting the myths that go into this book. How did you go about writing this up? Well, I was deadly scared of uh, Russian scientists and the Russian achievements in the domain of uh, Slavic myths. They are certainly um, the most productive group that ever wrote about Slavic myths, and some of the most famous names uh, were writing, uh, uh, trying to uh, construct the triads and the hierarchy uh, in Slavic myths. That's exactly what I didn't want to do. I wanted to show their, their lack of hierarchy and their structures which are completely different. So yes, it, it is a kind of answer to, to many ruling ideas about Slavic mythology, but it's also about putting into the first plan smaller Slavic uh, groups of narratives and oral traditions. That was our ideas. And also to think about myths that we could in, inter, interpret as uh, cultural myths. 
founding foundation myths. And uh, that's why we include, for instance, the famous uh, legendary Czechish ruler Libushe and uh, some other uh, ideas we, we brought into it, it, in showing how much connections there are between the state ideologies and the interpretation of mythology. And also uh, the main idea uh, of the book was to be a popular book, mm -hmm. not a real scientific achievement, but a popular book which would tell the story and give some basic philological, contextual, historical background to better understand these things. And we also put a lot of other myths which could not be included into these notes. So it's worth reading the whole book, not only the good stories. <laughs> and the other thing is also that the idea was uh, to include some aspects of Slavic myths which are not usually uh, discussed or researched. And uh, there's, there's a huge area which I absolutely adore and that couldn't enter into this book, and this is uh, about plants and use of plants and magic with plants. So when you were doing the research and the writing for this book, you're obviously an expert in the field and you're very aware of it. Did you come across anything, though, that completely surprised you, that, that you just had no idea about and it really struck you? But of course. <laughs> The, uh, the thing that struck me was going into detail about the myths which are common to different uh, ethnic groups, not only Slavs at all, like Albanians and Greeks, that I knew about it, but uh, when I gathered the, the real data and a lot of facts which could not enter the book, of course, that really surprised me. So that's a field of investigation for the Balkan researchers, basically for the Balkan researchers. And it's also a great initiative to make work together people from the West, uh, specialists from the West, with uh, native knowledge bearers <laughs> from other parts to make these areas uh, more known, more popular, more interesting. Well, also for, for cartoons and uh, video games, but <laughs> basically they already there with the Witcher on, on, on Netflix <laughs> to make this world uh, more known and uh, more amicable and also uh, more bearable. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is Svetlana Slapchuk. She's the author of The Slavic Myths. So when you were finding these, some of these myths that you weren't aware of previously, or even the ones that you were aware of and you look more deeply into them, is there one particular myth that has stayed with you more than the others, got inside your head, maybe even haunted you? Uh, I am haunted by one uh, person from the myths, which also was a profession in everyday life. And this is Zduach. <laughs> the name is uh, unpronounceable, but it comes from the Greek word stoicheion, stichion, uh, uh, element, and also element of weather. And these guys, uh, which were Albanians, Montenegrins, Serbians, and Bosnians, and also some Italian, Italians were able to control the winds and the tempests and so on and so on. And they were walking around through their rituals with the human nerves around their feet and stuff like that. This is really a magic creature, but it's also a creature from uh, life because we know their names and we know their deeds and what they were doing to do. They were able to fly. Uh, one of them would uh, 
deal with the tempest in Montenegro and then fly to Budapest, stuff like that. So <laughs> it's a creature that really works in your conscious, subconscious, and appears in your dreams, I can tell you. And that's why it's haunting you, because it's shown up in your dreams? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So I have to ask you that as I was looking through the book, one of the things that I, I thought was most memorable about it, in addition to the stories that you are telling, are the visuals in here. The, the, the woodblock prints are, are really splendid. Um, where, where did they come from? How did you, how did you arrange those? Uh, well, we did not. <laughs> That's uh, Thames and Hudson ah. editor's uh, job. They did it absolutely wonderfully. I was absolutely hypnotized when I was looking at these uh, uh, drawings. They're really, really wonderful. They have this character of wood cutting, and at the same time, of course, they are not. But they give a hint of primitive, traditional, um, somewhere in time, and at the same time, so, so, so impressive. Yeah, that, that's one of the best solutions for the book I could even dream of. <laughs> yeah, they really, they really, really struck me. Well, so we've got about uh, five minutes left, and I, I wanted to switch gears unless there is something important about this book that I have not covered with you, and then you can tell me what that is. Um, but I wanted to switch gears, and I wanted to ask you to tell me a little bit about the work that led to you being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, because that's obviously a big deal. And, and I wanted to hear more about the activities that you were doing that led people to want to recognize you that way. Oh, thank you for this question. I wanted to intervene, but I didn't dare not to steal oh, time. No, okay. <laughs> I was, in fact, in a group of thousand women proposed <laughs> for a Nobel Prize, Peace Nobel Prize. And it was an internet action, and women from all over the world uh, voted for uh, women who they thought were uh, fighters for peace. And we came up with 1,000 names. That was an, uh, a Swiss uh, uh, MP who decided to do this action. And uh, she uh, gathered these 1,000 names and went with them to the Nobel Committee. That's all. So yes, I'm one of the thousand. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> let's let's put it into the real frame. But uh, the other thing is, yes, I was activist for peace in all of my whole of my life, and I'm still is. So I I don't think I should be uh, rewarded for that. Well, is, is my stories and my life. So tell us a little bit about your peace activism then. We've only got about three minutes left or so, but but mm -hmm. what what things have you been involved with over your life that, that have had that well, role in mind? I was involved with, um, since the 68, let's face it, that's a crucial year in Europe, the university year of, around Europe. Uh, but then, of course, uh, uh, the real thing happened uh, by the end of 80s, the second half of 80s, when the nationalism started to tear uh, down Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And I was in a party which was uh, exclusively for the um, conservation of Yugoslavia and for peace. Mm -hmm. We didn't make it, of course, that's obvious. But uh, then I went to Slovenia uh, to live with, with, with my husband. And uh, uh, I was uh, doing many peace activities there. And then, let's say since the beginning of the 90s, there were so many occasions to plead for peace that I don't even remember how many wars and how many atrocities happened in that time, due, not only in the Balkans, uh, starting with Rwanda and uh, Asia and so on and so on. So yes, today 
is especially tragic time when we think about wars and, and genocide. Absolutely. Going so on. so uh, you must have um, some feelings about the war in Ukraine, I'm guessing. It's not terribly far away from where you are. Um, How have you experienced that? Well, uh, Ukraine is, is was very important for me because it's a country, it's a culture that was transferring some of the Western cultural modes to Russia, like the polyphonic music and stuff like that. And Ukraine is really very special in that sense. And when you think about how many artists, um, literates, uh, um, actors, musicians came from Ukraine, your heart really hurts. <laughs> so mm. that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is that uh, when you think about Ukraine as a mixture of very, very many different ethnic groups, and uh, its links with Russia, it's really tragic that this culture, which is so important in the heart of the Slavic cultures at all, is something that has been destructed in front of our eyes. Um, and the other thing is that uh, uh, we learned so much, being a feminist, I learned so much about violence against women that I, the first thing I think when, when there's war, there's violence, I think about women and children, mm. cannot do else. So it's it's really something that makes me very sensitive to to any kind of violence. And you've animals you, too. Yeah, well, you've 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 lived through so much of it, and you have seen so many different violent conflicts. As I think about the region of the world that you you occupy, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any optimism about how this war in Ukraine will ultimately end up? No. Hmm. No. There, there's a, a disturbing tradition of long-term wars in Europe in the past. So I hate to say it, but I'm not optimist at all. Uh, uh, revealing the possibilities of, of peace and uh, reasonable behaving between the states is something that did not does not appear as a solution at this moment. <laughs> so any appealing to rationality is useless i'm mm. afraid mm. well we only have a few seconds left i this may be too much of a of a stretch but thinking about those slavic myths thinking about the war in ukraine is there any sort of connection if the if the myths could be talking to the people in the conflict now is there anything that would be great you think they would say yeah what they would say first of all it would be the myths would have a sense of humor these myths are really the most useful <laughs> and the most pedagogically <laughs> applicable today. So the myths with humor, the animals, the wise animal who trick uh, trick uh, the, the others, the tricksters generally, are the figures that could help at this moment. Well, I'll keep hoping in that regard. I, I'm, glad <laughs> we to, I'm glad we were able to end that way. That was Svetlana Slopchik. And again, her new book is titled The Slavic Myths. It's a really beautiful book. I think it's informative and entertaining, and I think our listeners would enjoy it. Ms. Slapchuk, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. It was really wonderful to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. 
The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRBO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrbo.org slash Campbell Conversations.